Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now. Estamos a um passo da vitória em 2 de outubro. We are one step away from victory on October 2nd. One little bit is missing, just one little bit. In these few days left, we must work to win the vote of all those who love democracy. Former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva appears poised to win Sunday's election over Brazil's far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. But will Lula get enough votes to avoid a runoff? And will Bolsonaro accept the results? People are saying this is very possibly the most important election in a generation here in Brazil, if not generations, that could have lasting implications, not just for Brazil, but its neighboring countries. We'll go to Brazil for the latest. Then a cinema dedicated to documentary film opens here in New York City at the DCTV Firehouse. It's founded by the award-winning filmmakers Keiko Tsuno and John Alpert, who just won another Emmy Thursday night. The cinema's lobby will be dedicated tonight to the documentary filmmaker Brent Renault, who was killed in March while covering the war in Ukraine. We'll speak to John Alpert and Brent's brother Craig, as well as the filmmaker Reed Davenport. His new film about how he sees the world as a person with a disability opens at the Firehouse Cinema today. It's called I Didn't See You There. Every time we went out to film, the circus time was in the shot. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The National Weather Service has issued hurricane advisories to more than two and a half million coastal residents of Georgia and the Carolinas as Hurricane Ian gathers strength after carving a historic trail of devastation across Florida. Ian's expected to make landfall near Charleston, South Carolina today as a Category 1 storm. This comes as rescue teams and helicopters and boats are struggling to reach communities trapped by floodwaters. So far, at least 17 U.S. deaths have been attributed to Ian, but President Biden warned the Thursday, the number is likely to rise dramatically. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. The numbers of still are still unclear, but we're hearing early reports of what may be substantial loss of life. More than two million homes and businesses across Florida remain without power. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis said the storm caused biblical damage to Sanibel Island and tore homes to their concrete foundations in Fort Myers Beach. DeSantis called it a one in 500 year storm. NASA reports ocean temperatures off Florida's coast were up to three degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than usual for this time of year, helping to fuel Ian's rapid intensification to near Category 5 strength ahead of its landfall. 
Ukraine's government says a Russian missile strike on a humanitarian convoy has left 23 people dead and more than 30 others wounded. Today's deadly attack in the city of Zaporizhia came as Russian President Vladimir Putin prepares to deliver a major address in Moscow, where he's expected to announce four Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine will join the Russian Federation. President Biden condemned voter referenda used by Russia to justify its annexation of the territories as an absolute sham. While U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called annexation a dangerous escalation that would jeopardize prospects for peace. The U.N. Charter is clear. Any annexation of a state territory by another state resulting from the threat or use of force is a violation of the principles of the U.N. Charter and international law. Sweden's Coast Guard said Thursday it's discovered a fourth leak in the Nord Stream pipelines built to carry Russian gas under the Baltic Sea, as NATO formally blamed sabotage for underwater explosions that led to Monday's rupture. NATO did not blame Russia for the attack, though leaders of several NATO member nations have blamed the Kremlin without citing evidence. Meanwhile, Russian officials suggested the U.S. or one of its allies is to blame. The disaster is now thought to be the largest fossil gas leak in history. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates it added a tenth of a percent of estimated annual global methane emissions to the atmosphere. The U.S. Senate has approved legislation to supply Ukraine with $12.3 billion in additional aid, most of it to support Ukraine's military. It's part of a stopgap spending package needed to fund the U.S. government past midnight tonight. The House is expected to quickly approve the spending package, sending it to President Biden for a signature averting a government shutdown. Congress previously approved about $54 billion in military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. This comes as the Pentagon says it's preparing to open a new command base in Germany that will oversee a long-term training and assistance program for Ukraine's military. Senators approved the stopgap spending bill after West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin abandoned his own energy permitting proposal that would have fast-tracked federal review of permits for new energy projects, including the Mountain Valley frack gas pipeline. This week, the White House said it would continue to work with Senator Manchin to find a new vehicle to get his permitting reform legislation through Congress. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said in a statement, the president supports Senator Manchin's plan because it's necessary for our energy security and to make more clean energy available to the American people, unquote. In Brazil, voters head to the polls Sunday for an election that could see far-right President Jair Bolsonaro replaced by former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Polls show Lula has a strong lead over Bolsonaro, but it remains unclear if he has enough support to win the 11-way race outright. If not, Brazil will hold a runoff election October 30th. Lula has been running on a platform to reduce inequality, preserve the Amazon rainforest, and protect Brazil's indigenous communities. There's widespread fear in Brazil that Bolsonaro could attempt to stage a coup if he loses the election. Earlier in the campaign, Bolsonaro said, quote, only God will remove me from power. The army is on our side. It's an army that doesn't accept corruption, doesn't accept fraud, he said. We'll go to Brazil after headlines.
in Afghanistan. At least 19 people were killed and more than two dozen others injured today as a suicide bomber targeted an education center in the capital, Kabul. The blast struck a predominantly Shia Muslim neighborhood home to Kabul's minority Hazara community. Most of the dead and wounded are female high school graduates who are studying for a university entrance exam. This follows twin bombings at schools in the same neighborhood earlier this year in a 2021 blast that killed 85 people, most of them female students, while wounding 300 others. India's Supreme Court's rule that all women can access abortion care up to 24 weeks of pregnancy, regardless of marital status. Thursday's ruling ends a disparity in the availability of abortions to single versus married women. The court also ruled for the first time in its history that marital rape should be included in the definition of rape if a woman wants to abort her child. However, India remains one of 36 countries where marital rape is not a crime. Meanwhile, LGBTQ groups say the court's ruling leaves out transgender, non-binary, and gender-diverse persons who deserve reproductive care and protection from sexual assault. A new poll finds public trust for the Supreme Court at an historic low. Less than half of U.S. adults polled by Gallup report they have a great deal or a fair amount of trust in the Supreme Court. That's a 20 percent point drop from two years ago. This comes amidst fractures between the Supreme Court's conservative majority and liberal justices over whether the court's legitimacy has been damaged by recent rulings overturning decades of precedent. Justice Elena Kagan has recently has repeatedly spoken out over the issue during the court's summer recess. Here she is speaking at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law on September 14th. When we're talking about uh, uh, legitimacy of the court, it prevents people from thinking that it's all about politics. I mean, what if 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 a new judge come in comes in, if there's an, uh, new members of a court and all of a sudden everything is up for grabs, all of a sudden very fundamental principles of law are being overthrown are being, um, uh, 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 you know, replaced. Uh, then people have a right to say, like, you know, what's going on there? It doesn't seem very lawlike. Justice Samuel Alito, who authored the Dobbs decision in June, allowing states to once again ban abortions, told The Wall Street Journal this week, quote, saying or implying that the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line, he said. Chief Justice John Roberts has also criticized Justice Kagan's remarks. The House January 6th committee has interviewed far-right activist Ginny Thomas about her efforts to help Donald Trump overturn the 2020 election defeat to Joe Biden. On Thursday, Ginny Thomas spent more than five, uh, four hours testifying to lawmakers behind closed doors on Capitol Hill. Committee Chair Benny Thompson said afterwards Thomas had repeated her false claims about a stolen election while denying she discussed her efforts to overturn Biden win with her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas is the only member of the court who dissented in the Supreme Court's 8-to-1 decision that led to the release of White House documents around January 6. Justice Thomas refused to recuse himself in the case, leading many Democrats to call for his impeachment. 
The Biden administration has put student debt relief on hold for millions of borrowers after Republican attorneys general in six states filed suit in federal court seeking to block President Biden's debt cancellation program. In a court filing in a federal district court in Missouri, the states of Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas and South Carolina argue Biden's debt relief plan is unconstitutional illegal. Last month, the White House said it would cancel as much as $20,000 per person in student debt to help as many as 40 million borrowers. The Education Department said Thursday people who've already begun to seek loan forgiveness will still receive it, while others will have to wait while legal challenges play out. At The Hague, a man accused of helping to finance and organize the 1994 Rwandan genocide has gone on trial at the International Criminal Court. Felicien Kabuga has pleaded not guilty to war crimes charges, including genocide and crimes against humanity. On Thursday, the U.N. prosecutor Rashid Rashid said Kabuga purchased machetes, grenades and other weapons for a notorious Hutu paramilitary group known as the Intrahamwe, whose members were the main perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide side, which the U.N. says killed more than a million people in a hundred days. The charges against Kabuga reflects his status as a wealthy and well-connected political insider. In support of the genocide, Kabuga did not need to wield a rifle or a machete at a roadblock. Rather, he supplied weapons in bulk and facilitated the training that prepared the Interahamwe to use them. And new research has found three people are killed every week while trying to protect their land from extractive industries. The report by Global Witness documents the murders of more than 1,700 environmental activists by mercenaries, hitmen, criminal gangs, or their own governments. Topping the list of the world's deadliest countries for environmental defenders last year was Mexico, with 54 murders. That's followed by Colombia, Brazil, the Philippines, Nicaragua, and India. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we go to Brazil to look at Sunday's presidential election. Stay with us. Eu sonho mais alto que drones Combustível do meu tipo, a fome Pra arregaçar como um ciclone Pra que amanhã não seja só um ontem Com um novo nome, o abutre ronda Ansioso pela queda Fim do mágoa, mano, sou mais que essa merda Corpo, mente, alma, um tipo Ayurveda Estilo água, eu corro no meio das pedras Na trama, tudo os drama curvo, sou um drama curvo Com cama se afastada, lama enquanto inflama o mundo Sem melodrama, busco grana, isso é usando em curso Capulanas, katanas, busca nirvana, é um recurso É o mundo cão pra nós perder, não é opção, certo? De onde o vento faz a curva, brota o papo reto Amarelo, by the Brazilian rapper and activist Amacida The song samples an anti-dictatorship anthem recorded in 1976 by the Brazilian artist Belchior. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Brazil, where Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, faced off against former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva Thursday night in the final debate ahead of Sunday's presidential election. Polls show Lula has a strong lead over Bolsonaro, but it remains unclear if Lula has enough support to win the 11-way race outright. If no candidate receives 50 percent of the vote on Sunday, a runoff will be held October 30th. Lula is a former union leader who served as president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. During that time, he helped lift tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty. He's been running on a platform to reduce inequality, preserve the Amazon rainforest, and protect Brazil's indigenous communities. In 2018, he was jailed on trumped-up charges, paving the way for the election of Jair Bolsonaro, a retired military officer who's often praised Brazil's former military dictatorship. There's widespread fear in Brazil that Bolsonaro could attempt to stage a coup if he loses the election. Earlier in the campaign, Bolsonaro said, quote, only God will remove me from power. The army is on our side. It's an army that doesn't accept corruption, doesn't accept fraud, he said. During Thursday night's debate, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva criticized Bolsonaro's efforts to keep secret many of his government's actions, including his handling of the covid I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make a decree to end your 100-year secrecy, to know why you want to hide so much for 100 years. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a decree and sign it to know what this man wants to hide for 100 years. And I'm going to stop here because I want others to participate in the debate. President, when you show up here, please lie less. During Thursday's debate, Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, accused Lula, the former president, of lying. The ex-convict says that I decreed the secrecy of my family. Which decree gave me the decree's number? He says I delayed the purchase of vaccines. No country in the world bought a vaccine in 2020. Stop lying. When you talk about hunger, I gave 600 reais and aid to Brazil. You gave little to the poorest. You used the poorest as a way to win votes. To talk more about Sunday's vote in Brazil, we're joined by two guests. Michael Fox is a freelance journalist based in Brazil, former editor of NACLA, and host of the new podcast, Brazil on Fire. He's joining us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Here in New York, Maria Luisa Mendonça is the director of the Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil and a visiting scholar at City University of New York Graduate Center. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Maria Luisa Mendonça, let's begin with you. Talk about what's at stake in Sunday's election. It's fuzzy. Of Bolsonaro of having a far Maria right Luis, if you could begin that, again, I didn't catch the beginning of what you said. Yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, this is a very important election in Brazil because after four years of having a far right government represented by Bolsonaro. Uh, voters in Brazil are about to send a strong message and say that uh, we don't want a far-right government. And I think it's important also for people to understand that uh, 
Bolsonaro only won elections four years ago because Lula was in jail and uh, based on false charges. There was no evidence against him, um, but he was put in jail anyway, so he couldn't run four years ago. And before that, there was a parliamentary coup in 2016 against President Dilma Rousseff. So that was the context that created the possibility for Bolsonaro to get elected. And now, you know, that is a, a, a broad alliance in society uh, to support uh, the candidacy of Lula. So, you know, there is a lot of activism. Many artists are involved with the campaign. And uh, so Lula was able to build a broad alliance for this election. And, Michael Fox, what about the threats of Bolsonaro, similar to Trump, um, not to accept the results of Sunday's election? Talk about the polls, what they're showing right now. It's not just between the two of them, of course, and there's, like, what, more than—there's uh, close to a dozen candidates. But one of them has to hit 50 percent for it to be an outright victory. That's right. So— what we have right now is Lula's roughly 14 to 17 points ahead of Bolsonaro. He's hovering around 50 percent of the valid votes, according to the latest polls. So even though all those other candidates, they have less than 10 percent, they're minor candidates. Uh, Ciro Gomez would be the one who has the most. It's around six or seven percent. So the big question is Lula going to hit that 50 percent mark? Is he going to be able to win it in the first round? And that is the thing that everyone's asking themselves. Now, like you said, the, the potential for Bolsonaro to come out and, and say that, no, I don't respect these results. That is absolutely. And most people think that he's going to he's going to follow down Trump's path. He's going to do that. Uh, he's been setting the scene for that for the last year and a half. And in fact, what we saw just two days ago, his party, the Liberal Party, came out and released a document saying that they had audited the, the, the electoral the voting system and saying that there was the potential for, for grave fraud. Of course, the, the, the electoral court responded almost immediately, putting this in and inside the fake news investigation, calling it absurd. Uh, and in fact, they have now requested from the Liberal Party who paid the invoice, who actually bankrolled this document, because they think what is, is happening here is trying to set the scene for then Bolsonaro to come out later on and say, oh, well, see, I told you it was fraud. That's what we already seen. So this is kind of the, the general playbook that we're already expecting. Everybody in Brazil is pretty much expecting this. The, the, the reality behind it is the fact that most of Brazilian society just they are not on, on board with the potential for a coup. They don't want that Three quarters of Brazilians said in a recent poll that they want democracy and they'd like to stick with this. And I think that, uh, well, we're, we're crossing our fingers and hoping that's what happens. Maria Luisa, we're talking about the, what, sixth or seventh largest population in the world, Brazil. This election is extremely significant. Talk about what Lula represents. Yes, uh, Lula is a very popular figure in Brazil because when he was uh, president, there was a you know, real change in the lives of people. He, I think for the first time in Brazilian history, there was a great deal of investment in education, in health care, in job creation. Uh, so there was also a lot of support for culture, for the arts. 
So I think people saw in very concrete terms what, you know, the results of his government. Also, uh, he, one of the main uh, programs in his administration was the Zero Hunger Program. And uh, now, you know, in a few years of Bolsonaro, Brazil again is in the so-called hunger map. So there was a huge increase in hunger and poverty in the country. So also President Dilma, who uh, was uh, also f with the Workers' Party after Lula, was very a very popular president in her first term before the orchestration of a parliamentary coup. So the only way the right-wing uh, parties can take power is by, you know, orchestrating those kinds of uh, coups. So that's why that is a real fear right now. But I think at the same time, Brazilians, the majority of Brazilians understand that uh, their lives were much better before, and they want those kinds of uh, changes and uh, investments in education, health care, culture and the arts. Let's go to Brazil's presidential candidate, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, speaking Monday to his supporters. Never before in the history of this country have so many parties, popular movements, unions, trade unions, associations of classes, workers and entrepreneurs, liberal professionals, artists, intellectuals, athletes, people of different colors and religions, sexual orientations and political preferences come together in the first round of an election to say, enough with so much hatred, so much destruction, so many lies, suffering and so many deaths. We are going right now, on the 2nd of October, to rebuild the country. So, uh, Michael Fox, if you can take off from what Lula is saying and also talk about the Brazilian rainforest, talk about the Amazon, uh, the protection of the Amazon and what has happened to it under uh, Bolsonaro. Well, absolutely. The organizing uh, in support of Lula has been extremely important and unprecedented. In fact, many different social movements even join forces to create what they're calling these these popular committees, these grassroots committees in neighborhoods around the country. And it kind of takes off the work that was happening under the pandemic to try and respond to the rising hunger where people were organizing and bringing food and, and working in solidarity. Well, they've, they've now built these grassroots committees somewhere between 5,000 and 7,000 around the country to organize for Lula and then to continue organizing uh, regardless of what happens. So it is an extremely important election. Everyone sees it as that. And, and I just want to say for a second that it's not just on, on the presidential election, but also on like the, the, the very local level. You have different social movements, indigenous peoples, women, black movements, who have uh, an unprecedented number of new candidates that they're putting out there. So that is really important on the local legislative level. Now, the Amazon, it has been devastated under Bolsonaro. I think just one thing to point out, if you remember back in 2019, when we had all the huge fires that were going around, people were protesting around the world. Well, the fires this last year were even worse. They've been worse consecutively each year. And deforestation in the Amazon is the worst we've seen in a decade. And this is because Bolsonaro came in with a promise to push development in the Amazon. He gutted um, uh, agencies, state agencies, the environment agency, indigenous agencies that in the past had defended 
um, indigenous territories and defended the environment. Uh, and he came in, gutted all this. And his own violent rhetoric of trying to open up the Amazon for development really let loose landowners and miners and loggers and narco-traffickers and said, you have carte blanche to do whatever you need to do in the Amazon. And that's what they've done. The invasions of indigenous territories spiked 150 percent just in the first three months of Bolsonaro's government. And under COVID, basically what happens is they pulled the rug out. Everybody backed off because everything was isolating. And that's the, the illegal forces really took advantage of that to really move into the territories. Violence spiked. Uh, and, and this is the destruction that's happening in the Amazon right now. Now, it's really important to understand that if you look back just 20 years ago, when Lula came into power, deforestation in the Amazon was even worse than it is today. And within a couple of years, with the help of Marina Silva, his environment minister, he went in and they were able to enact a series of new measures, policies that cut Amazon deforestation in half within two years. Uh, so there is obviously hope that if Lula is able to win, if he's able to come back in office, you know, he might be able to, to, to re-implement some of these things to push back uh, on, on the devastation that's happened in the Amazon up till now. In August, Jair Bolsonaro formally launched his re-election campaign with an attack on Lula. This is what he said. Our country does not want to take steps back. We don't want gender ideology in schools. Our country does not want to legalize drugs. Our country respects life from its conception. Our country does not want to become an ally to communism and other countries. A country that wants a president who defends private property. A country that increasingly preaches its people the freedom to raise their children. We are going to talk politics today, so tomorrow no one will prohibit us from believing in God. Maria Luisa Mendonca, touch on these themes. Talk about what he's getting at. Yes, uh, Bolsonaro is part of this global far-right movement, and uh, also he has a lot of support from the evangelical church in Brazil. And he dismantled several policies and institutions that protected uh, women's rights, um, that fought against racism in Brazil and, uh, you know, the arts, the culture. He dismantled the Ministry of Culture and the human rights uh, institutions in Brazil. And he promotes this violent rhetoric. And uh, I think this is another reason why uh, in Brazil, what we see, for example, is that uh, he tries to spread fear, fake news and hate. And uh, what we see is also a broad coalition, in addition to the grassroots movements, the social movements uh, that Michael was uh, talking about, that is also a broad coalition of artists, of musicians, very well-known artists in Brazil are speaking out and are campaigning for Lula. So there is a broad coalition. And uh, so this is a key moment for Brazil. And we also need international solidarity. For example, in relation to the destruction of the Amazon, we need to look at the role of foreign corporations that benefit from that. And uh, we are not talking about development. We are talking about destruction, destruction of l the land, destruction of Brazil's natural resources, and there are mining companies, agribusiness corporations, financial corporations in the U.S. that benefit from that destruction. So I think it's very important for us to build international solidarity because we will need 
uh, that moving forward. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate passed a resolution calling on Brazil to ensure the election is conducted in a, quote, free, fair, credible, transparent and peaceful manner. Senator Bernie Sanders sponsored the resolution. It is imperative that the U.S. Senate make it clear through this resolution that we support democracy in Brazil. It would be unacceptable for the United States to recognize a government that came to power undemocratically, and it would send a horrific message to the entire world if we did that. It is important for the people of Brazil to know we are on their side, on the side of democracy. Michael Fox in Sao Paulo, your final comments leading into Sunday's election in Brazil. I just want to say that that resolution from the Senate was so important. I mean, if you look back in 1964, the coup that happened here in Brazil, the military coup, that was greenlighted by the United States. So to get a really strong, profound statement from the U.S. Senate, that means a lot. It means a lot to the military here. It means a lot to the business sector. It means a lot in Brazil. And I just say that, look, um, the, 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 the mood on the ground is one of a lot of excitement. It's one of tension. And people are, are really hopeful that they're going to see change on Sunday. Michael Fox, journalist in Sao Paulo, Brazil, we want to thank you for being with us. And Maria Luisa Mendonça, Network for Social Justice and Human Rights in Brazil. Thank you so much for being with us from the CUNY Grad School here in New York City. Next up, as a cinema dedicated to documentary film opens in New York City at the DCTV Firehouse, its lobby will be dedicated tonight to the documentary filmmaker Brent Renault, killed in March covering the war in Ukraine. We'll speak to John Alpert and Brent's brother Craig, as well as the filmmaker Reed Davenport, whose new film about how he sees the world as a person with a disability opens at the Firehouse today. It's called I Didn't See You There. Stay with us. There's no way to write it, there's no way to fight it And I kick and scream but you got me despite it And I got my pride so I begin to hide it like fire in Freetown, you begin to light it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, see the Hogasharoka. Uh-huh, uh-huh, you shine down upon me. Uh-huh, uh-huh, see the Hogasharoka. by the Somalian musician Kanan, performing in 2009 in Democracy Now!'s Firehouse Studio. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Tonight in New York City, the former home of Democracy Now!'s Firehouse Studio will open as Firehouse, DCTV's cinema for documentary film. It comes as DCTV celebrates 50 years of media activism and training. The cinema's ribbon-cutting last week featured New York City Council member Christopher Marte and DCTV co-founder and co-executive director Keiko Tsuno. 
50 years ago, we never dreamed that this theater would become a reality. At that time, we started our theater from an old mill truck, and uh, our audience of people from passing by. And uh, so this is, this is something we never expected and never uh, imagined. With this new theater, we will be able to reach even more people and to transform more lives. Many people here know John or Keiko through their international work, whether it's going to Cuba and being one of the first documentarians to interview Fidel Castro, or his work in Russia, or his work in the Amazon, or his work in the Middle East. But here in the community, we know him for what he's done here for decades. Whether it's interviewing garment workers as they are taking on their bosses for exploitive working condition and working hours, or is using his TV truck at, along pantry lines to teach people how to speak English, where he would go up and read, help them read what's on the screen, or documenting, documenting what happened to our community post 9-11, or through the pandemic. And now with this fight, stopping the world's tallest jail from being constructed here in Chinatown and in lower Manhattan. For more on the opening of Firehouse, DCTV's cinema for documentary film, we're joined by its co-founder and co-executive director, John Alpert, and by filmmaker Craig Renault, who we'll talk more with in a minute. First, John, congratulations both on the opening of the cinema and also just last night. You won another Emmy. This time, uh, it's a news and documentary Emmy for Outstanding Crime and Justice Documentary for your HBO film Life of Crime, 1984 to 2020 about three friends from Newark, New Jersey, and their addictions, who you have followed for decades. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, and congratulations. Thanks, Amy. Listen, I was hoping we could actually be in the studio. Everybody at DC TV says, Democracy Now! t-shirts, please, please. Well, I wish we were right there with you in the Firehouse Studios. Um, but it is so beautiful to see what you have created um, at DCTV right now. Um, can you talk about—well, take it where Chris Marte had left off. Uh, place this Firehouse uh, cinema for us, um, where it is um, right there in Chinatown, what's next door and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Well, it actually inhabits some of the former Democracy Now! studio. And so the the vibes that emanate from your presence there uh, have really blessed us uh, and, and inspired us. We wanted to build uh, uh, something that really respected and paid tribute to documentaries. Um, you've seen the theater. It's the most beautiful theater in the city. It's completely interactive. We can connect any two places in the world so we can have discussions with Kazakhstan. We can have discussions with you. And, and it's the documentary theater we would have liked to have had as we went through our career and sort of always got the dregs of uh, the, whatever was in the film world. We were documentary makers. We built it for the documentary community. And we want everybody to come there. Uh, you'll see from the programming from the gentleman that's coming on next that this is going to be a different type of theater that's going to serve the community. That's the good news. 
The bad news is that it's 90 feet away from what is projected to be the first world jail scraper. This is a 40-story jail, $9.5 billion, no money for schools, no money for housing, no money for health care, but money for iron bars. I mean, it, it's almost incomprehensible that somebody thinks that this is a good plan. Everybody in the community opposes it. It's probably the physical end of DCTV. If this gets constructed, it's over for us. It's absolutely over for the community. And we're working trying to get the city to, to come to its senses because we've got two perfectly good jails that have been built there recently that can just be readapted. If you readapt those jails and then take the savings and spend it on the things that prevent people from going to jail, giving opportunities to people, it'll be wonderful. We hope that the city will come to its senses. You know, just very quickly on that. This new theater that we built is gone. I remember yeah. right next door to us as we were there, too, broadcasting for years, was the Bernie Carrick Detention Complex. That's what it was called right down the street from you. Um, and then they had to take down that sign when Bernie Carrick was actually imprisoned there, um, the former police commissioner of New York. Um, but just for people to understand, and we want to move on from this, but it is so critical. When you say a jail scraper, what are you talking about? We're talking about a building that's probably uh, a, th a third of the size of the Empire State Building that is a jail. Uh, you know, it, it, New York City has uh, a hellhole for a jail right now with Rikers Island. Uh, and the plan is to build local jails in the community. Our community supports that, but we don't support what's basically a gigantic pork barrel scheme to defund everything else and just build iron bars. It, it's a really bad idea. So I want to move on to what's going to happen tonight, um, uh, the dedication that is going to take place. As the Firehouse, DCTV's Cinema for Documentary Film opens here in New York City. Um, the lobby tonight will be dedicated to the filmmaker Brent Renault, who worked out of DCTV for many years, along with his brother, who's joining us now, Craig Renault, award-winning filmmakers who spent two decades producing films and television programs with Brent before Brent was killed earlier this year on March 13th near Kiev in Ukraine, as he was filming refugees for a documentary series called Tipping Point. He was the first U.S. reporter killed in the Ukraine war. Craig, our deepest condolences to you and your family. On Democracy Now!, of course, we remembered Craig after he was killed. I could not even believe we were talking about remembering Craig, as opposed to having Craig on to talk about what he was filming. Um, and I look forward to seeing you there tonight, the whole family, as you dedicate the lobby of this documentary film uh, cinema. Um, can you talk about Brent uh, after these months of his death and what it means to you to have this cinema in the place where we both worked for so many years? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a huge honor. We were at DCTV yesterday getting a tour of the theater for the first time, you know, and, and seeing the, the plaque to Brent. Um, you know, it's still surreal at this point. I would say, you know, it's it's been six months, and it's still hard to believe that, that you know, we're talking about Brent in this way. But, um, but you know, this couldn't be a better way to honor him, you know, considering the, you know, many years and many films that we did with DCTV and John to, to be coming back, um, 
and honoring Brent in this way is really great. We're showing a photograph right now of John and you and Brent and Sharif Galkadus. Oh, um, <laughs> no, is that the one? Is that the one where we're where, 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 just where robbing my surfer shorts? You're just yeah. <laughs> wow. You're just standing. But I want to go to a clip from Bridge to Baghdad, which John you directed, and Craig and Brent went together with Sharif in 2003 to Iraq. Now we're going to visit my aunt. She lost her son in the bombing. Uh, he's my cousin from my mother's side, of course. And um, you'll see she's very sad. The airplane came and threw a cluster bomb. bomb. Yeah, whatever it is. I thought it's mushroom bomb. And I know it's forbidden. I know it's forbidden. Why? Why my son? I lost my son and he's my treasure. As you see from the bombing, there's holes of the, on the windows. It happened because of the cluster bomb. It's so obvious. They are just civilian people. And one went through the metal. See? You can see. Went through this metal, break this glass, and went to the, wall, to the ceiling in the inside. This is his father, Kusay. It was in the night I went to see him in the hospital. There's no army here. Yeah. Yeah. But though uh, that American, they said Saddam Hussein, killer. But I think Bush, it's more than killer, Saddam Hussein. Yeah. We're going to see his room, his bedroom. When they told me he died, the doctor told me, I begged the nurse at least to give me some of his hair. This is all what I've got from him left and a bit of blood I'll show you. This is, she cut it to me after he died. I said, please, I won't, I wouldn't let them take him. And then they said, please leave him in peace. It's over. He's, he died. Anyway, this is his trouser when I kept it. Look. This is his leg. One of his legs. That's when he'd be shot. Look. The things he've been, all this been through him. All these holes. They caught it in the operation, full of holes. I mean, just look, the blood, look. these holes from the bomb and they said we don't have civilian people we don't have civilian people they hurt us <laughs> bridge to baghdad the film that was filmed by craig and brent renault directed by john alpert um craig you and brent both appeared on democracy now several times to talk about your films including that 10-part series off to war for discovery about the deployment to Iraq of the National Guard from your home state of Arkansas. This is an excerpt. 
Mama, mama, can't you see? Mama, mama, can't you see? What this army's doing to me? What this army's doing to me? As the war in Iraq enters its second year, nearly 3,000 soldiers from the Arkansas National Guard are called to active duty. Most of these guys, before we got activated, held a civilian job. If the turkey houses get sold, then so be it. It's out of my hands right now. I don't want him to go. Yeah, they're going to target you because they think you're just a bunch of lazy, fat National Guardsmen who don't know how to do their job. These soldiers are part of the largest deployment of National Guardsmen since the Korean War. The military has confirmed that four Arkansas soldiers are killed in Iraq this weekend. 57 of the Arkansas Guardsmen come from the town of Clarksville. This is their story as they leave home and family behind to serve in Iraq. An excerpt from the documentary series Off the War from Rural Arkansas to Iraq, directed by Brent and Craig Renault. In 2004, the Renault brothers appeared on Democracy Now! to talk about their time embedded with the Arkansas National Guard. This is Brent. We arrived in Baghdad with a, a National right. Guard unit, uh, with the Arkansas National Guard, and these same sort of unarmored vehicles. Um, right away in April, which was one of the bloodiest months of the war when we arrived, there were, right off the battle, a lot of uh, injuries and deaths, uh, particularly with Echo Troop, who you just saw on the clip. Um, within that group, there were a number of guys who refused to go out on missions almost immediately um, after they had seen their, their friends and their fellow soldiers die right in front of them. Um, fortunately for them, uh, Sergeant Short, uh, who you see in the clip, the, the one talking in the Humvee, handled it internally, gave them time off, uh, allowed them to get it together and to get back on the job. But I would say right off the bat, I witnessed about three to four guys who were just saying it's too dangerous to go out there. Um, we're dropping like flies, as you also heard it in the clip. Um, and this is pretty widespread sentiment. That's dear Brent Renault, um, the filmmaker, in the Firehouse studio when we were broadcasting there, talking about that amazing series, Craig. And I know this is so hard. It's as if he's right next to you, and you've worked for so many years together. Your final thoughts on how his legacy continues? Uh, I mean, it's always going to continue. You know, I'm, I'm working on a film about Brent right now. You know, the nice thing is, is— when I got to Ukraine, uh, you know, I had two goals, which was to get Brent home to our family and to get Juan um, out of Ukraine. And then the second goal was to get Juan the was the reporter he was working which I was with. Able to do. Um, and we filmed my entire journey going over there. So we're putting together a film right now about Brent's, you know, final assignment and the work that he died trying to do. So. And Juan you know, was that would uh, be a nice legacy his, for him. Juan was his colleague in uh, Ukraine who was also shot but not killed. That's correct. Yeah. And Juan will be there tonight at the theater dedication. John Alpert, your final thoughts as we move into the film you'll be showing tonight uh, at your new cinema. Well, I think Brent's a real hero. Um, how many wars did you go to? I've lost count. I'm you not can't, sure. You can't count them. And, you know, every, every war since 9 11. Yeah. And, you know, once you go to see war, something happens to you. It happened to you, it happened to me. Uh, and, and you need to tell the world what war is really like. You know, uh, we have a lot of problems in America, but we've been fortunate that the wars in general haven't been here. But we've been involved in a lot of them. And it's important that Americans know 
what happens when people go to war. And Brent committed his life to telling that particular story, and he gave his life to that particular story. He's a real hero. And um, it's going to be a moment of pride every time we walk in the lobby and we see his picture up there, both tinged with sadness because uh, we've all lost somebody who was fighting for us every single day, but very, very proud of what he's done. Absolutely. Well, Craig, I want to thank you Craig, for— Craig, Craig, did, 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 Amy, Craig, did, Craig, Craig's done the same thing. Okay, you've done the same thing. You know, this is, this is what we do. Craig, thank you for speaking with us today. It's great to have you back on Democracy Now! And John, filmmaker, co-founder and executive director of DCTV, who work closely with Brent, um, we thank you both so much for being with us as we end today's show with a documentary that is opening today at Firehouse, DCTV's cinema for documentary film in its New York City theatrical debut. And people, when they walk through the lobby, will see Brent's face um, as that lobby is dedicated Tim. The film is called I Didn't See You There. It's filmed and directed by Reed Davenport, who has cerebral palsy, and reflects on the portrayal of people with a disability in media and popular culture. This is an excerpt. Every time I went out to film, this focus time was in the shot. The tip made me think about the legacy of the freak show about being looked at, but not seen. An excerpt from I Didn't See You There, the directorial debut of Reed Davenport. Film, um, one quote said, uh, the film is first-person poetry and captivating motion expressed with a singular, assured, artistic voice. It'll broadcast on the PBS series POV next January. Reed, welcome to Democracy Now! Congratulations on your film. You're not just the director, you're also director or photography, you filmed this entirely yourself. Talk about how and why you made this film. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. Um, I think I've done films before, personal films, where I am uh, seen on the camera and it did really come close to my perspective. Uh, it subjugated me, and I think documentary film has traditionally subjugated disabled people. So I wanted to completely turn the edit on its head and really um, show a perspective that was more closely approximate to my perspective without showing my face. I mean, it really is amazing. It changed me because it's all from your perspective as if we are your eyes, we're you, and you're looking at the world. Talk about the title of your documentary, I Didn't See You There. Yeah, so I think there can be many interpretations of it. Uh, it's, it's a phrase I've heard. It's um, coded in apology for not seeing me. Um, I think 
They are asking for forgiveness for ignorance and not considering baby but um ignorance is a choice at the end of the day at the end of the day and an apology is only going to do so much. Um I um many disabled people and myself need to be seen by society. And talk about why you prefer to be called a person with a disability uh, rather than a disabled person, Reed. Um, I, 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 I apologize, but I actually don't. Uh, either two books for me, uh, you can put the person first, or you can put my political identity first, which is disabled. That's a personal preference. I don't, I don't really identify as a person with cerebral palsy. Uh, for so long, disability has been cast as an individual medical diagnosis. But in reality, it is a group of marginalized people who have been um, marginalized in the same way. You know, Reed, we played a clip um, from I Didn't See You There, and you referred to the circus tent. Can you talk about the freak show and the circus tent in your film? Well, I think after making a few personal short films, I had this kind of questioning of whether or why people watched my films. Was it was it because of of trying to um, be more accepting, or was it a little more sinister and um, also subject to, to gawking um, in public? And then um, Ashoki's tent literally appeared across from my apartment. I couldn't have made that up as it became this symbol of me trying to reckon with my filmmaking practice and my overall relationship with society. Reed Davenport uh, won the Directing Award for U.S. Documentary at the Sundance Film Festival, um, where I Didn't See You There premiered. It went on to win the Grand Jury Award at the Full Frame Documentary Film Festival in Durham, North Carolina, and the Golden Gate Award at the San Francisco International Film Festival. John Alpert, I'm glad you're still with us. I wanted to ask about the significance of, first, it was Abby Disney's film that premiered last Friday night, and then having Reed's film, I Didn't See You There, tonight, as you dedicate the lobby to Craig Renault, to Brent Renault. Um, 
we, we hope that this is the cinema that gives the information, gives the voice, gives the power that we all need to have in our society. Uh, read my hats off to you. It's a fantastic film that you've made. It's quite inspirational. Abby Disney's film talks about important issues, all the work that Brendan Craig did. Very, and you're going to see all that stuff at our cinema. I hope you'll all come. Uh, we've worked really hard to make it. Amy, I wish you were there to share this with us in the, in the same building, but you'll be there tonight, and I hope everybody else will come down to our cinema. It's a and magnificent thank, cinema. Thank you, Craig. Yeah. Um, John Alpert, award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker, co-founder of DCTV, the Firehouse uh, Cinema. Uh, Reed Davenport, filmmaker, whose award-winning director directorial debut, I Didn't See You There, is playing tonight and all next week at Firehouse, DCTV's cinema for documentary film. Uh, that film is also going to be on PBS POV uh, in January of 2023. That does it for our show. Happy belated birthday to our engineer, Paul Powell. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for two full-time jobs, an associate digital editor and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Geister, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Teresena, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, and Mary Conlin. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, Dennis McCormick. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.